0: Hi there. This is Dharma Punks New York, and I'm Josh. I'm hoping that anyone who's near Brooklyn uh, area will feel encouraged and welcome to join us uh, on Tuesday, August 8th, where we'll be doing an in-person Tuesday night at this time uh, gathering. And I'll also, the plan is to also Zoom it. Uh, It's at 105 Grand Street, August the 8th at 7 o'clock. These gatherings will be by donation with generally hope that people can throw in 15 bucks to pay for the use of the space, but no one will ever be turned away due to lack of funds or if you want to throw in less than that, that's of course okay. So on August 31st, we're going to be having a four-day retreat at Garrison Institute. Join us. We keep the prices with Garrison as low as possible. There are scholarships available for those who are teachers. And uh, it's in a beautiful location, very easy to get to from New York, just a hour ride on the metro north to garrison and then you can walk to the center it's a lovely place to view the hudson and lots of hiking trails and lots of opportunities to connect as well so please consider joining our labor day retreat and um and you can always find the information for all of these events and offerings on the website NYC dot com and punks is spelled with an X and my work is offered entirely by donation I never charge for anything I do so uh, the Venmo is Dharma Punk's NYC the PayPal's on the website and there's a Patreon page if you feel like uh, keeping me sustained that way Um, and that's you can find it on Patreon and Dharma Punk's NYC. Tonight, processing anger. Much of our lives, when we're in comfortable, unhurried states, relaxed, we make choices that we feel good about because in those states our frontal lobes are capable of inhibiting bottom-up survival impulses And so we can act in terms of moral and ethical norms, but there are times in life where we act impulsively in ways that can subsequently create feelings of guilt, shame, or embarrassment. Examples off the top of my head, um, people who are influencers in healthy life and exercise who are caught binging on fast food and well-intentioned parents who under duress find themselves screaming at their toddlers people who set every intention not to have sex on a first date find themselves engaging in frantic unsafe sex people who take pride in standing up for themselves and not being pushovers might find themselves suddenly fawning and accommodating bullies or in job interviews shutting down. Uh, As a Buddhist, I'm not immune. I I very often under times of stress can find myself at the secondhand clothing store rifling through t-shirts and hoodies in that kind of unconsciously driven need to spike dopamine levels and to feel motivated and rewarded. And uh, of course, people who pride themselves for speaking in public can suddenly have panic attacks. I back in about 10 years ago, had quite a few of those when I'd have to speak in front of large groups. So In states where we're comfortable, we make choices, we act in ways that we feel good about, we're not driven by survival impulses, those are known in psychology as cold states. And at times when we're taken over by bottom-up impulses of lust, uh, fear, rage, shame, joy, uh, shock, Um, that's what's known as a hot state. And it can feel at times as if we're in a liminal or uh, another shadow self. People can describe it as almost watching themselves act. It's important to know uh, what's called the empathy gap. The empathy gap is a very basic psychological observation that most people never uh, hear of, though it's so useful to for developing self-acceptance and self-compassion which is that when we're in one mental state or men, or state of being it's almost impossible for us to understand or even remember what it's like to be in a different mental state when people are anxious it's almost impossible for them to remember what it feels like to be safe When people, on the other hand, feel safe and confident, they don't remember what it's like to be rife with anxiety and fear. When people are enraged, they don't remember what it feels like to be forgiving and comfortable. When we are in a good place, we can't even fathom what it's like to be enraged. We don't remember How temporary and fragile all of our mental states are. People are incapable of reflecting generally that this too shall pass. They feel as if unless they act right now, something terrible will happen and it won't, the challenge of the issue won't go away. Now, our society as a whole validates being calm. Individuals invariably in studies over-predict how calm and rational they'll act in stressful situations. Researchers like Giordano and Van Boven show that individuals invariably predict that they'll be confident when they're faced with conflicts, when in actuality, people very often fawn or freeze, but don't actually stand up for themselves. There was a study I remember reading about where ninety percent of people, when they were asked to what they would do in a job interview, where they were asked inappropriate questions, uh, would say they would get up and leave. But when they actually did the study, in, where people thought they were in job interviews, nobody left. So everybody predicted that they would leave, but in fact, people didn't. They, at most, would ask why at the very end somebody asked that question, but they would never stand up, confront, leave, or... So we have a profound misconception of how we'll respond to stressful situations. Um, in fractions of a second bottom-up pre-conscious processes identify threatening or important stimuli in our environment and prepare us to adapt. This could, for example, when we've experienced something that's threatening, we might experience a flush of the stress hormones, first adrenaline then cortisol, our amygdalas leap to life, activating the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland, um, fast circuits and action potentials that clench our muscles, respiration and heart rates climb, arteries contract, our skin tightens. And this creates a negative feeling a feeling is something that we are aware of that represents a change in our bodies, but that other people often can't see. So for example, I might be in public uh, very, very uh, anxious, but the feeling you wouldn't be able to see it would only be the expression of that internal state. So if someone's feeling guilt and the, and the feeling might be this plummet of um, of energy down to the pit of their stomach, but you might not, as a, someone looking at that person who's feeling guilt, you might not know it at all. Feelings are simply internal representations of shifts in our body. Um, on the other hand, when we're in a situation that could be rewarding, you see someone who's attractive, smiling at you, and you're not dating anyone, or you're... Uh, some opportunity suddenly presents itself, you're a hunter gatherer, and you suddenly spot fruit dangling from a tree. And the dopamine that's forward projected by your striatum to your frontal lobe will create all these pleasure sensations in your body and and ready to approach the fruit. So that's a positive feeling. Now, once again, feelings are internal representations of our body shifting. Emotions are behaviors that others can see. They're how feelings are manifest in actions and signals to others. So if we're sad, at first we might feel this internal shift, but then we might signal our sadness by crying or if we're frightened, we might visibly tremble or run away from a threat or avoid something that causes us anxiety. If we feel guilt, we might visibly shudder. you know uh Homer Simpson used to go do like that do I can't do it, but anyway, that kind of expression of gasping people might hold their heads in their hands um so these are emotional. Signals They turn internal body states into states that other people can see and sometimes actual actions that uh, address the um, the situation at hand. Most negative feelings turn into negative emotions that are associated with withdrawal when we're frightened. Sad, guilt, shock, disgusted. We tend to withdraw, remove ourselves, pull back. Um, positive emotions like joy, love, gratitude, and pride are pro-social approach impulses. They encourage us to connect, make eye contact. And so the dopamine surges and the internal states of ease and comfort encourage us to smile and laugh that signal our internal ease and uh, well-being. So the final step in the process, first we have the feelings, then we have the emotional expressions, and then finally we have the cognitions, which are the stories that try to make sense of why we're feeling the way we are, why we're acting the way we are. So if we're anxious, the this underlying state can turn into catastrophizing thoughts. Everything's going to turn out badly. I'm going to fail. I'm going to make a fool of myself. If people are going to not like me, if we're experiencing grief, uh, that might translate into thoughts of self-pity and hopelessness and despair. And if we're experiencing pride in something we've done, it might turn into positive self-ideation stories about uh, how we're helping people. It might encourage us to embrace new opportunities. So first we have the feeling, then we have the emotion, and finally we have the stories, the cognitions that try to make sense of the entire experience. Now, anger is a pretty unusual state in that it's a negative emotion that, or it starts with an neg- a uncomfortable feeling that turns into a negative emotion which is generally associated with rising body temperature, muscles clenching, um, gritting one's teeth. And then it turns into though an approach, not a withdrawal, but approach orientation, prompting us to confront people who've engaged in harmful behaviors or who have impeded our healthy pursuit of, of resources Um, Anger is also unusual in that, unlike most of the other emotions, anger is the only one that's just as left hemispheric in the brain as right. And what that indicates is anger, more than any other emotional state, uh, comes packed in with a lot of thinking, scorekeeping, resentments. Um, Anger started as a way to uh, punish In our tribal backgrounds, we would keep score of people who weren't contributing to the tribe, and anger would impel us after we kept scores and built up these resentments. It would encourage us to confront them. So more than any other mental state, anger, it's very difficult to unpack the internal feelings from the impulses and the stories. They all feel... As one, and yet it's essential as we'll see to be able to unpack them, because, as not only clinical psychology and um, therapy teaches us, but also the Dharma teaches us that uh if we try to tackle the cognitions of anger, uh the empathy gap will. hinder us. We'll never be able to appreciate what it's like being anger enraged until we're actually in it. So there are ways to address anger, but it's not a cognitive-based approach at first, at least. So uh, feelings are important. Uh, Damasio in the somatic marker hypothesis showed that in life, most of our decisions involve some degree of what he called somatic markers or feelings playing a significant role, um, helping us make choices. And if we didn't feel the aversive feelings of anger, we'd never set boundaries in our life. People who repress their anger fail invariably to establish boundaries in their relationships to pursue their own goals they're prone to caregiving or to um to um uh what's the word i'm blocking it but dependent personality disorders they are um prone to not confronting injustices in their life so uh, it was only my own ability to feel anger that impelled me first in 2016 and, to, and 2020 to uh, march and be a part of the social protest movements. If I couldn't feel anger, I probably would have been uh, someone who felt fear and wouldn't have uh, been able to go out, connect support, be an ally, and so forth. So um, anger that's repressed all the time leaves us very vulnerable. Today in psychology, there's a distinction between primary emotions and secondary emotions. Primary emotions are what we feel, and they might not look good to other people, our Our emotions might not be other people might not like the fact that we're angry or frightened or or shocked, but it's just the initial reaction. The secondary emotion is what we do to conceal uh primary emotions that we feel uncomfortable with so in patriarchal misogynist cultures, women are shamed for expressing. Uh, anger, disappointment for pushing back, and they're trained to respond to aggression by being accommodating or consensus building and not setting boundaries. On the other hand, men are shamed by their peers for the primary emotions of sadness or fear and encouraged to be angry. So, depending upon your gender and the culture you're in and your family system, You might have a natural primary emotional response inhibited by secondary emotion that looks better to the people around you. When anger is repressed, the impulses remain what's called unmetabolized. They don't go away. If we have somebody come up to us and insult us or scream at us and we don't... uh, get into a state where we stand up for ourselves, if we freeze, if we inhibit it with being accommodating or fawning, then the impulse to push back remains stored in the anterior cingulate, the amygdala, the ventral striatum, the caudate nucleus, and signals to muscle groups known as action potential will keep us in this state where we're expecting to protect ourselves, even though the threat Has passed. So unresolved anger is often deflected onto other people who, where we feel safer. People who at bosses, jobs have bosses who scream at them, might feel overpowered, freeze, accommodate, and then go home and kick their dog or yell at their children or their spouses. Individuals who were mis treated by their parents, might express rage at their own children, um, and so on and so forth. So it's not like repressed anger goes away. It actually stays latent as action potential in muscle groups, impulses in the striatum and the caudate. Uh, the amygdala stays hyperactive, hypervigilant, uh and so we're constantly waiting to t- express that anger so we express it in in places where we feel less immobilized often on in just innocent people um so um if we repress anger too um in contemporary therapeutic understanding they, it, when it returns, it will create what's called anxiety, signal anxiety, that in turn will lead to spikes in addictions. People who are constantly suppressing their anger will use drugs, alcohol, uh, uh, to suppress the memories, the and the feeling of discomfort in their body. Um, and this leads to a lack of agency, fragmentation, and a lack of integrating oneself. Sometimes people seek the spiritual bypass and try to become Buddhists as a way to get rid of their anger. They they like come to people like me, Buddhist pastors, and say, "I don't want to experience anger," and generally in a kind of buddhist way i say basically good luck i mean that's that's not something that uh i can teach how to process anger but i can't teach how to get rid of it and i'll talk more about what i even mean by anger in a moment but there's no bypass around anger it's there for a reason it's been uh While it's different in every culture, expressed differently in every culture, as Amy Barrett showed us, uh, but um, that still every culture has its own version of anger because all cultures are based on tribal bonding. And in all tribal bonding, there's times where one person won't live up to their responsibilities or will take advantage of others. So uh, it's we have anger because we need to, at times, experience it. Um, on the other hand, there are times when anger leads to vastly bad outcomes. And the general predictor of that is rumination. Anger, uh, first and foremost, when it leads to a reciting internally of... Um, uh, a litany of mistreatment, victimization stories and narratives um, has been shown to lead to loss of social contacts and connections, conflict with family and friends, inability to form durable, intimate relationships. Um, Over time, people who ruminate rather than know how to feel anger process it and then skillfully address it will become unable to construct appropriate narratives and collaborate with others. They become incapable of seeing other people's points of view. They become increasingly victimized. um, And they can't see their own role in conflicts. It's associated with borderline personality disorder anger and major depressive disorder. You can read studies on it, the mediating role of anger rumination and de- major depressive disorder. There's other papers on the role of rumination and relationship to antisocial behaviors and um, and also papers on understanding the relationship between uh Uh, resentments and uh, emotional cascading behavioral dysregulation and stuff like that. So the story, ruminating in the story of mistreatment is every bit as bad as um, lashing out or as repressing anger. All of those three approaches are terribly, terribly maladaptive and lead to just some uh, dreadful interpersonal outcomes. So how do we process anger skillfully? Well, it's essential first and foremost to note if it's a primary or secondary affect. If we linger in resentments over lost relationships, um, in general, we're using anger as a way to conceal feelings of loss and loneliness and that's maladaptive, because um in situations where people don't actively uh attack or hinder our growth, but simply in times we disconnect or are stuck in relationships that are incompatible, the emotion that helps us process skillfully that event is the capability of grieving, feeling sad um Feeling then lonely allows us to be motivated to connect with new people. But resentment simply keeps us aloof and away. It it inhibits us from connecting with new people. On the other hand, anger is entirely uh, adaptive when someone has out of the blue um, tried to overpower us, has acted in a way that's physically threatening has hindered uh, or our ability to pursue healthy goals. People have taken credit for work we've done and stuff like that. That's where anger is motivating. Now in the Dharma, the Buddha, like I hope I was um, listening at the beginning instructs one to break down anger into the constituent parts. In fact, the most important teaching in the Dharma, the Paticca Samhupada, the first understanding or uh, foundation is to that contact with stressful situations, he says, turns into negative feelings, which he calls dukkha veda. Now, you don't have to know that. He just says there's internal shifts that are uncomfortable. And then from that, we have an emotion of aversion. And that from that, we have anger stories, what he calls ditti upadana. And um, there's another one. But so w- the Dharma in the Paticca Samapata breaks down what we lump all under anger uh as one thing, the feelings the actions and the thoughts we just call it all anger but the buddha calls it three different things and it's because in pali and and this breaking down of anger into three different uh, constituent parts that the dharma offers us a very skillful way of addressing anger or uh the feeling of being um of needing to confront the situation so a lot of people note that in some of the buddhist teachings there's this constant uh phrase of uh getting rid of anger what's translated as anger but actually that's uh, always a bad translation uh dosa is a story, a thought. And very often Buddhist translators translate resentment or dosa into anger. It's this kind of angry thought, hatred. But the feelings of anger in the body are actually always dukkha vedana. So there's always this clear separation of the dharma between things we need to feel versus things we need to address subsequently. In the Dharma, anger is constructively alleviated by interrupting the chain at the feeling state. We observe our body's temperature rising, the skin tightening, the muscles contracting in our forehead, the, the teeth clenching, this uh this uh um, this In internal state of discomfort. And we sit with that. We don't get in its way. We allow it to arise and to pass. And the Buddha notes that this is vital, observing mindfully the feeling of dukkha is the foundation first and foremost to processing. Because once we allow... The impulse to fully feelings to arise and then to pass then the uh impulse to immediately act to vent to attack uh is alleviated, and then we can skillfully respond to situations so once we've allowed the feeling to arise and pass, the next state is to ask ourselves, as the Buddha lists in the Savasava Sutta, what situation or expectation led to this feeling in my body of of discomfort? What led to this emotional impulse to push away, to yell, to scream? Um, In the Savasava, we're discouraged to turn it into a story about ourself or other people and simply to know what general observation can I make about this situation. Then what we do is we can choose an abundance of different strategies and the Buddha lists so many. He encourages us to focus our attention away f- at first from the uh, situation if possible that's causing the distress in the future to engage in self-soothing activities that make us feel more comfortable to practice acceptance and to put aside expectations. The famous example is the myth of Sisyphus, who constantly expects the rock to stay at the top of the hill. And that's what causes his suffering. If he ever simply accepted that every day the rock would roll back down, there wouldn't be any emotional distress. So sometimes if we simply accept, okay, uh, I'm going to go into work, my boss or my supervisor or my work colleague is going to be in a bad mood, or this is the, this is, I'm going to have to see this friend who's going to talk a lot about themselves and not ask me a question about myself. If we have these If we change the expectations very often, then the suffering shifts by accepting what has happened in the past. We can set aside an intention to suppress the story, uh, reciting the story, and cultivate the opposite, forgiveness. Now, um, I should note very briefly, and I've given entire talks on forgiveness, so I'll simply note that in Buddhism, forgiveness doesn't mean that we drop our boundaries and put ourselves in the same situation with someone. Forgiveness doesn't mean that other people get off the hook. Forgiveness simply is a determination not to repeat in our minds the stories of what happened to us. So... It's not saying that we're okay with what somebody did. It's very different from Christian forgiveness, where we're taught that uh, Christ turned the other cheek while he was being assaulted. In Buddhism, that's not what forgiveness is. Buddhism, you get away from the people who are assaulting you. You feel the rage Um, in your body until it passes. You make a determination to avoid that situation. Um, You then over time, you set an intention not to recite what happened over and over again. People believe that it's reciting the story that keeps them safe. But in fact, that underestimates all the emotional learnings that brains do if you are mistreated by someone or harmed by someone or physically assaulted by someone, you don't have to keep reciting the story because guess what? Your unconscious mind, all of your right temporal lobe, your amygdala, all the unconscious, preconscious regions of your brain will remember it very well and create feelings of uh, aversion or, uh, or an, uh, tension when that person's around. So the story actually doesn't keep us safe. It's just a way that we try to make sense. And it actually gets in the way of adapting and setting boundaries. So what we're going to do in the meditation is we're going to cultivate a quiet uh, state. We're going to first get to a state where we're comfortable And then what we're going to do is bring to mind an image, not a story of a difficult interpersonal experience that caused resentment. And we're gonna watch the feelings arise entirely in the body without translated into a story of what happened. We're just gonna hold an image, allow the feelings to arise. Once the feelings subside, Then we'll reflect on how we constructively can respond in a way that's adaptive. And then finally, we'll do a little bit of forgiveness practice. So I hope that sounds enticing. If not, I did my best. So what I'd like to encourage you to do is to find a really comfortable position and don't uh, feel in any way encouraged to meditate in front of your screen. You can turn off the camera, or you can lie down or sit somewhere off camera. I find it useful to not feel observed when I'm meditating, but for some people, they don't mind. So whatever works for you closing the eyes, And bringing the attention into your body, finding any set of sensations that provide a comfortable landing stage for your awareness. So for some people, it might be just paying attention to the eyes or the palms of their hands or the breath expanding and releasing in the chest or the belly. There's no right or wrong place. Contrary to what people think, the Buddha never taught to pay attention specifically to the air. In the nose or the mouth or the chest or the belly, he simply said, a good place to start is simply knowing, am I breathing in or breathing out? And that's up to you. You find the sensations that comfortably convey, whether you're inhalating, inhalating, inhaling, inhaling <laughs> or exhaling, If you don't like paying attention to the sensations of breathing, that's fine. You can simply listen to the sounds arising and passing around you, or simply observe the movement of energy in the body, or visualize in your mind's eye a place where you feel safe, or simply calmly, slowly recite A kindness phrase. May all beings be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. May I be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. Where you can even observe with eyes closed, any lights refracting behind closed eyelids. The key is to find a practice that's soothing. So if you are going to pay attention to the breath, it's encouraged as a good Foundation, at first, to count one on the in-breath, and then two on the out-breath, three on the next in-breath, four on the following out-breath, and then when we reach five on the next in-breath, we start counting back down, so four on the out, three on the in, two on the out, so we're counting from one to five and back down with in-breaths always on the odd numbers. That's a good way to settle ourselves down. Also try to make the exhalations as long as your inhalations. That engages a whole subset of neural pathways that encourage relaxation. So, on the other hand, if you're tired, you might want to breathe in more completely. So, find the strategy that works for you. And when thoughts pull you away, just practice. Anything other than frustration or criticism, just enjoy the fact that you're cultivating space and ease in your life, that you're giving yourself tools to disconnect from intrusive thoughts. And we'll just sit in silence for a while. So, at this point, we're going to do a mindfulness practice. Just give an example of how we might work with a situation that's caused um, uh, real aversion, rage. anger so bring to mind an experience that has left a residue of either outrage or lingering resentment some form of repeating story and what we're not going to do is engage in that story again we're simply going to know what the event was And then, for those of us that can visualize images in our mind's eye, just come up with an image that epitomizes or represents the entire experience. It could be a look on someone's face, or it could be some other crucial moment of the experience, us uh, being uh, unsupported, uh, someone promising to do something and then reneging, who knows, just hold an image that represents the event, If you can't visualize things, that's fine. Just come up with a very simple, single phrase. We're not going to recite the entire story, but just epitomize the story as the time X did Y. And whether it's a little phrase or a single image, just hold it in mind and just ask ourselves repeatedly, how does it feel? How does it feel? If nothing arises, you can fine tune the image or the, Try again with another phrase. But if you even begin to feel any slight quickening of the pulse, tightening of the belly, raising of uh, the hairs in the back of your neck, furrowing of your eyebrows, uh, clenching of your jaw, any internal feeling that a movement of energy up from the belly up to the chest, a tightening of the muscles in your arms, if you can find anything that represents your body to your attention, Indicating that something wrong is or inappropriate has happened. Just pay attention to that feeling. Encourage it. It's okay. It's okay to feel. It's okay to have this outrage or shock or Discomfort in my body. Sometimes it might be helpful for people to do this practice by slightly holding a towel and gently strangling the towel. Sometimes this practice could be done by literally putting our hands out like we're pushing away someone. It's okay to physically. Manifest the feelings, maybe gritting teeth or squeezing the fingers into fists. It's okay even to have a slight trembling with anger or the feeling of anger. The key is to not inhibit it, not to suppress it, to give it a safe space to express itself. So, if we were to consider these feelings of discomfort and uh, tightness and heat and trembling and clenching as a child expressing to us in our bodies that we've been hurt or Mistreated, then the role of the cognitive mind, once the feelings have subsided a bit, the inner parent or adult part of the brain is to figure out ways to protect this hurt child. What are the best ways for us to adapt so that we don't feel this way again? And for adaptive strategies, it's best not to go to extremes at first, like, well, never talk to X or be around X ever again, whoever that person is. It's best to know specifically what situations, what expectations, what environments did we place ourselves in that we could change. What rules can we set for ourselves to feel safer in the future, less vulnerable? Years where we get creative. Setting boundaries doesn't mean walling ourselves off from others, nor does it mean allowing others to continuously treat us poorly. It means knowing what constructively, how to respond. And you'll know that you're on the right path when you come up with an idea that makes that feeling in your body vulnerability and outrage dissipate further. While we could devote a lot more time to this practice in the interest of connecting and answering questions, at this point I'm going to encourage people to slowly take your time and while keeping your body relaxed, put aside these reflections and bring your attention back to the screen...